of the main responsibilities of a parent is to raise disciplined children. Children who can delay gratification, are considerate of the needs of others, are assertive without being aggressive or hostile, and can tolerate discomfort when necessary. The goal of discipline is to protect the child while also helping them learn self-discipline and appropriate behavior. Sounds simple, right? I would venture to guess that there are probably a million books written on parenting because as straightforward as the goals of discipline are, the practicalities of it are much more difficult. What behaviors do we want to encourage? How do we get our kids to do what we know they should do without consistently having to nag or punish them? What should our rules be? What should happen if a rule is broken and then broken again? How do we get them to care about what is important and to consistently act in a way that is appropriate? Throughout scripture, God refers to himself as our father. And as a good father, he does things like define appropriate behavior. And he is faithful to raise disciplined children. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 tells us, Do not despise the Lord's instructions, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Hebrews 3, 9 and 10. We had human fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, based on what seemed good to them. But he does it for our benefit, so that we can share his holiness. These last several weeks of study have been pretty painful as we have watched our Heavenly Father discipline some of our siblings, the Israelites. God's actions make a whole lot more sense to us when we view them through the lens of a good father dedicated to raising his children. In fact, we see a lot of very good parenting from God. So our goal is going to be to learn from the mistakes of our siblings so that we don't find ourselves having to endure the same discipline from our father. The discipline that the Israelites were, had to endure from last week was awful. They refused to enter the promised land, and the consequences were horrible. All of the scouts that brought the negative report were instantly killed. Everyone old enough to know better that went along with the report was doomed to spend the rest of their lives wandering in the wilderness. Their children were going to have to spend 40 years waiting for their parents to die. It was terrible. And after hearing God's judgment, the people refused to accept it. 
They tried to go into the promised land without God, and they were defeated quickly. I would venture to guess that this was probably one of the lowest points for the Israelites. And then we get chapter 15 with all these details about offerings. The placement of this section of scripture could seem really odd until we consider the purpose of sacrifices in the Bible. The purpose of sacrifices was to establish a relationship with God and then to maintain and grow a relationship with God. So consider what a comfort the words of God would have been in chapter 15 to these people who likely were questioning whether God was done with them. Consider hearing him say, when you enter the land. That would have assured them that his promises to them still stood. Receiving instructions about offerings would have assured them that a relationship with God was still available to them. After punishing any of my kids, I often feel the urge to as quickly as possible go in and talk to them and tell them that I love them. That's how I view this section of scripture. God just gave a very difficult consequence to his children, and now he takes the time to tell them that he still loves them. They're still his children, and he still wants a relationship with them. Chapter 15 is one of those sections of scripture that we probably just want to read over. It's hard to see the relevance to us. In general, the sacrificial system is both difficult to understand and it seems pretty irrelevant. But I firmly believe that God uses all of his word to teach us important things. So I'm going to spend a few minutes addressing the sacrificial system. Let's first talk about why it's so difficult to understand. And there are at least a few very good reasons for that. First, we have no practical experience with the sacrificial system. Not only have we never participated in it, none of our ancestors have for about 2,000 years. So if you're wondering, no, the Jewish people do not participate in the sacrificial system. And why is that? Well, it's not because they believe that Jesus fulfilled it, as Christians do, they're still waiting for their Messiah. The reason that they don't participate is because there is no authorized place for sacrifices to occur. When God built, when God had the tabernacle built and he came and he dwelt in it, he made that the one place where sacrifices could occur and it had to occur on the altar. That's where they occurred up until the point where Solomon built the temple to God in Jerusalem. And from that point on, that was the only sanctioned place where sacrifices could occur. When the Israelites were exiled to Babylon, no sacrifices were offered. 
The very first thing they did when they returned during the days of Nehemiah, Ezra 3 says, was build the altar so that sacrifices could resume. And sacrifices continued up until shortly after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They stopped in the year 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple. So there has not been a temple for sacrifices to be offered to God for a very long time. And that's the first reason why the sacrificial system is difficult for us to understand. Another reason why it's difficult is because there is no one section in the Bible that we can go to and get all of the information about the sacrificial system. Each book of the Bible was written by a particular author to a specific group of people, person or group of people, for a specific purpose. Every single person who wrote a book of the Bible had practical experience with the sacrificial system, and so did their audience. So they didn't take the time to explain it to us. So for instance, if I were going to write a book to modern believers, and I want to address something about social media, I'm not going to take the time to explain to them how social media works. I'm just going to assume they know, and I'm going to get straight to my point. So that's what we see happening in the Bible when the sacrificial system is mentioned. They just assume their audience knows all about it, and so we are left trying to piece together disparate pieces of information about it. But even if we had a complete instruction manual, it, we would not know it like someone who actually participated in it knew it. We do not understand the sacrificial system. So we should be really humble when we speak about it. The central point of this week's passage is not the sacrificial system. It, this is just one of those places where we get some of that disparate information about it. So I'm not going to go into a ton of detail, but I want to point out a few things that we should keep in mind. And I want to highlight some things that we learn from this section of scripture. <clears throat> First, God gave many commands regarding the sacrificial system. We saw in this section of scripture a lot of them. For any type of sacrifice, God specified exactly what could be offered, how it had to be offered, and sometimes he even specified when it needed to be offered. God is the one that decides what makes a sacrifice acceptable to him. God made it clear that these sacrifices, when done properly, were accepted by God. They accomplished their purpose. And actually, the people doing the sacrifices the way that God said was an act of obedience, and it was pleasing to God. It is common for us to think of sacrifices only in terms of entering into relationship with God. And the New Testament makes it clear that the finished work of Jesus Christ is the only way that we enter into relationship with God. But the people were already in covenant with God. They already had a relationship with God. So when we see all these other sacrifices, their purpose is not entering into relationship with God, but something else. So sacrifices were done 
to maintain or to grow relationship with God. When the people entered the land, they were going to offer all these different types of sacrifices. We saw free will offerings, thanksgiving offerings, fellowship offerings. They were going to offer all of these things to draw near to God. And in addition to the regular offerings, we got a little section about a contribution offering. They were going to offer the first batch of dough to the Lord from the food of the land that they ate. Throughout scripture, we see this same concept over and over again. The principle seems to be that people acknowledge God's provision to them by offering him part of what he has given them. This is likely where the guidance related to tithing comes, giving God the first or best part of our earnings. Our relationship with God is going to cause us to want to offer sacrifices to him, to want to draw near to him. In our homework, we looked at all kinds of sacrifices that God accepts and that are pleasing to him and that help us draw near to him. We saw obedience, doing what is good, sharing, imitating God, walking in love. We saw that we draw near to God through prayer. So God wraps up this section on offerings by addressing two types of sin. Because sin is something that causes us to need to do something to come back into right relationship with God. One thing every single parent almost innately focuses on when they consider wrongdoing on the part of their child is, did they do that on purpose? We almost automatically have more patience for our children when we think that it's an honest mistake versus when we know they knew what they were doing. And we adapt our punishments based on that. God did the exact same thing. God's standard is that his people would be careful to learn and obey all of his commands. In Numbers 15, 22 through 26, God told the people that sacrifices had to be offered even when they sinned unintentionally. And Leviticus 4.14 instructed that the sacrifices needed to be offered when the sin became known. Taken together, these passages show us that ignorance is not bliss. Actually, we should want to be made aware of unintentional sins in our lives. Because any sin, known or unknown to us, affects our relationship with the Lord. And if we are made aware of it, we have the opportunity to seek forgiveness, which God freely gives. And that deepens our relationship with God. So you see, unintentional sins matter. They still required a sacrifice to get into good standing with God. But they're not as bad as intentional sins. Even when we look at sins that we are aware we are committing, there still seems to be some distinctions. 
Sometimes people sin because they are weak. They know what they should do. They even want to do that, but they find that they are unable to. God seems to be pretty patient with these types of sins. Next, there's obedience that you know you're committing. You might have the power not to do it, but you just don't want to. But you're still maybe hiding it a little bit. You're not super proud of it. Those are worse. And when we look at the punishments, we see that it cost the guilty party more for those types of sins. It took more for them to get back into right relationship with God. Just like we enter into relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, the New Testament makes it clear that our sins, after we have um, entered into relationship with God, they still require atonement. And that atonement is also achieved through Jesus Christ. So you see, the sacrificial system gives us a much better appreciation for everything that God has done for us, that Jesus did for us. But at the complete opposite end of the spectrum from unintentional sins are what is addressed next. Numbers 15, 30 through 31. But the person who acts defiantly, whether native or resident alien, blasphemes the Lord. That person is to be cut off from his people. He will certainly be cut off because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his command. His guilt remains on him. There is very strong language in this section of scripture. So let's look a little closer at these terms so that we can understand what exactly is going on here. Defiant means full of or showing a disposition to challenge, resist, or fight. To blaspheme is to speak irreverently about God or sacred things, showing great disrespect. To despise means to look down on, to regard as worthless or distasteful. So you see, in this section of scripture, it's the attitude of the person, their lack of esteem for God and his word, their fighting against him, that is what is being emphasized. Defiant sins are extremely dangerous. They harden our heart, and as our heart hardens, it leads to bitterness, and bitterness, if allowed to grow, will turn into defiance. The way out is found in humbly drawing near to God. Or, if that's just not possible, at least focusing on truth about God. We must take every thought captive, and we must tell truth to ourselves. Even the newest Christian knows things about God that they know, they truly know, that they have experienced. Things that they would never question about God. Focus there instead of the area where you're doubting. Have you ever felt like your heart was hardening? I have. And it is 
frightening. Our thoughts and our beliefs about God, are, they affect our hearts. In those vulnerable times where we are hurting, where we feel like God has let us down or abandoned us, we are vulnerable to wrong thoughts about God. We must take our thoughts captive. For me, at my lowest point, where my heart felt hard, maybe even on the verge of defiant, the thing that I was questioning, I was doubting the goodness of God. So focusing there, is God really good, was definitely not helpful because that was the thing that I was struggling with. Instead, the thing that ultimately allowed my heart over time to soften enough where I could humbly draw near to God was something that I would never question. And it was the exact same thing as the Apostle Peter in John 6, when many disciples were leaving Jesus because of hard things that he said. Jesus said to Peter, he asked him, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Peter replied, John 6, 68, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. No matter how discouraged I was, how abandoned I felt, the absolutely brutal truth of the matter was that there was nowhere else to go. Focusing there was how I got out of it. Well, the power of God was how I got out of it, but focusing there helped. And now I can say that out of that struggle, I firmly believe in the goodness of God. It is now one of those things that I do not question. I know. Defiance against God is dangerous. And we should do whatever we need to, to not succumb to it. Even if we've started down that path, at any point in time, we can decide we don't want to do this anymore. Throughout the Bible, we get many examples of people doing defiant sins and God being faithful to forgive and restore them. So as we move forward in this week's text, we saw three examples of defiant sins. And for each, we were given details about what happened, what the result was, and for each, God commanded something to help his people learn from the situation. No parent likes to give harsh consequences to their children. And so when we have to, we often try to turn them into teachable moments with the hopes that they will not do this again. When I was in high school, I had planned to go to a Carmen concert with some friends from youth group. And this was something that we planned for quite a while. Well, leading up to the concert, apparently I was in full teen mouthy mode 
And my mom warned me over and over again, and it did nothing. Like, I just kept persisting. And so finally, she told me, you can't go to the Carmen concert. And she actually fulfilled that. Like, she did not let me go. That was one event that I missed. Just one night. But literally for years later, anytime I was starting to like not listen to the warnings, she would say, remember the Carmen concert. Because she wanted me not to do that again. She wanted me to know that she would be faithful to make good on whatever threat it was that she was making, and generally it worked. So with each of these three defiant sins, God does this. He commands that his people do something so that they will remember and not do this again. The first example of a defiant sin we get is the man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. This was a serious crime. We, a bit of background, keeping the Sabbath is one of the Ten Commandments. That's one indicator of how important this command was in the eyes of God. Another indicator of how important God viewed it was the prescribed punishment for transgressing the Sabbath. The punishment which all of the people had agreed to freely as part of the legal code that they received from God was death. Exodus 35, 2 through 3. For six days work is to be done, but on the seventh day you are to have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord. Anyone who does work on it must be executed. Do not light a fire in any of your homes on the Sabbath day. We were told that the people were unsure what to do with the man they found gathering wood. They may have wondered, is gathering wood work? And anyone who endeavors to keep Sabbath has to wrestle with this sort of question. What should be considered work? Exodus 35 makes it clear that anyone lighting a fire should be put to death, but it seems as though this man hadn't quite done that yet. So should they just wait around and see if he does before executing him? So they bring it to the Lord, and the Lord gives a ruling. And from the Lord's ruling, we see that this was, in fact, a defiant sin. Listen, this man did not accidentally do this. The people, no one worked on the Sabbath for, well, for about a year now. So he didn't accidentally do it. No one else was out gathering wood. So I would characterize this defiant sin as not caring about what's important to God and then pushing the envelope. This was really dangerous, too, to the entire community. Because it's very easy when somebody else is doing something and they get away with it to just think, I might as well do that too. Don't we see that slippery slope often? The consequences for this defiant sin were severe. This man paid with his life. And after that incident, God told Moses to have the Israelites make tassels for the corners of their garments, putting a blue cord on each tassel, Numbers 15, 39 through 40. These will serve as tassels for you to look at so that you will remember all the Lord's commands and obey them 
and not prostitute yourselves by look, following your own heart and your own eyes. This way, you will remember and obey all my commands and be holy to your God. That's what God wanted them to remember. Our second example of a defiant sin was found in chapter 16. This is where a large group rebelled against Moses, accusing him of exalting himself over the community. Three groups of people took part in this rebellion, but three individuals seem to be the ringleaders. Even amongst the ringleaders, we see different motivations for their actions. This rebellion is referred to as Korah's rebellion. So Korah either started it or took the most prominent role in it. Korah was a Levite of the Kohathite clan. So he was from the same tribe and same clan as Moses. The Kohathites were responsible for transporting the most holy objects. And when Moses addresses Korah, he tells him, he accuses him of being discontent with their role in the community, of vying for more power for the priesthood. Dathan and Abiram, these men were part of the tribe of Reuben. We see from how they address Moses that they were just bitter about the consequences that the entire community was going to have to endure as a result of their rebellion. Their statement to Moses was absolutely outrageous. You brought us up from a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm sorry, are you referring to the land of Egypt where you were a slave to kill us in the wilderness? Um, you're going to die in the wilderness because you refused to enter the land. Moses actually begged you not to rebel. Do you have to appoint yourself as ruler over us? It's been proven over and over again that Moses did not appoint himself, that God appointed him. Furthermore, you didn't bring us to a land flowing with milk and honey or give us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Moses tried. You refused. Somehow, these three men were able to convince 250 other men, leaders in the community, to rebel with them. I would characterize their defiant sin as vying for power. Vying for power can happen because we are discontent with the role that we have. It can also happen because we're bitter about consequences that God has given us, and we want something different. This should definitely Buying for power without regard for God's will, for what God wants, should definitely be considered a defiant sin. Listen, there is something in each of us that wants to be important. And I can't help but wonder if it's not caused by a failure to see that we do not earn God's love. God does not love somebody more because of all of the things they do for him. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything from us at all. What he actually wants is for us to care about what he wants, 
to draw near to him, to want a relationship with him, to be obedient to him, to love him, to walk with him. And when we do that, he leads us to where we serve. We do not need to vie for power. Our success is going to be measured by God alone. And I'm convinced it's going to be based on how well we have responded to what he has prompted our hearts to do, not the results of whatever it is that we think we've done. Ephesians 2.10 tells us we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. God has prepared good, good works for each of us. We do not need to vie for power. In response to this defiant sin, God was prepared to consume the entire Israelite community. But Moses and Aaron interceded, and everyone was given an opportunity to separate themselves from the people acting defiantly. In yet another instance, God very obviously confirms his choice of Moses. When the ground opens and swallows Dathan, Abiram, Korah, all of their families and their possessions. But I do want to point out that actually not all of Korah's family died. Numbers 26.11 tells us that the sons of Korah did not die. In fact, we see that they wrote many psalms to the Lord that are recorded. Fire also came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that were offering incense before the Lord. Offering, presenting incense, was a duty of the priests. So these men, who had not been ordained as priests, presumed to be able to offer and, and act like a priest. And as a warning, with the hopes that people would not make this mistake again, God commanded that the fire pans be made into hammered sheets as plating for the altar. Number 1640. It was to be a reminder for the Israelites that no unauthorized person outside the lineage of Aaron should approach to offer incense before the Lord and become like Korah and his followers. Our third example of a defiant sin was found in Numbers 1641. The next day, the entire Israelite community complained about Moses and Aaron saying, you have killed the Lord's people. Just a day prior, the people had fled because they thought that the earth was going to swallow them too. And the very next day, they are back complaining about Moses and Aaron. They keep making the same error. Assuming that Moses is acting on his own, refusing to accept God's punishment of them. And the consequences are even worse. Another plague. This time, we see Moses telling Aaron to, quick, to go quickly and make atonement for the people. This episode contains information that we should pay attention to. Consider Aaron. Just a few short chapters ago, Aaron committed a similar sin of criticizing Moses, and he experienced consequences. Aaron was forgiven, and now we see him acting very selflessly 
on behalf of people that are complaining about him. The repentance from Aaron from chapter 12 seems to have been sincere. Aaron humbled himself, and God, in fact, did exalt him. In this section, we see Aaron in his role of high priest, foreshadowing the person and work of Jesus Christ. He made atonement for the people. He stood between the living and the dead. And I find it very interesting that Aaron interceded for the people before they repented. That definitely reminds me of the work of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.34, Christ Jesus is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. The people continuing to complain and blame versus accepting God's discipline was a defiant sin. And once again, after this defiant sin, God initiated a sign so the people might stop it. He has 12 staffs, one for each tribe, placed in the tent of meeting and causes Aaron's staff to sprout, form buds, blossom, and produce almonds. And God says, number 1710, put Aaron's staff back in front of the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels so that you may put an end to their complaints before me or else they will die. In the last several weeks of study, God has had to discipline his children, the Israelites, a lot. And we would be foolish to think that God, that we will not have to endure some discipline from God as well. So as we wrap up this week, let's consider the wisdom of Proverbs 15.32. Anyone who ignores discipline despises himself, but whoever listens to corrective correction acquires good sense. God is our perfect heavenly father. And he will not raise spoiled, defiant children. He will be forced to make the consequences worse and worse until we decide to submit. The only response that makes any sense at all to correction from God is to humbly accept it and to learn from it. And each human heart must decide, will I defer to God or will I persist in challenging, resisting, and fighting him? Let's pray.